0: Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode number 40, Danny Rowling, aka the Gainesville Ripper, part two. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode number 40, and we are going to be finishing up Danny Rowling, a.k.a. the Gainesville Ripper, today. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, number 39, that's part one of this case. And that talks about his childhood, where he came from, his crimes before the murders, and, you know, how he basically got into this life. So this part, part two, is going to be about his murders And what happened after. And I'm going to provide a trigger warning for this episode. It's a lot more graphic and it does talk about murder and it's pretty gruesome. So if this is something that you're not comfortable with, you may want to skip this episode. I really don't have any more announcements, so let's just get right into this case. So where we left off, Danny was released from prison and then he returned to his hometown in Shreveport, Louisiana. And this is where he would commit the first of his eight murders. So things were really not going well for him at this time. He was on the verge of being fired from his job at a restaurant and he was very angry about this. So at the time he noticed a 24 year old woman named Julia Grissom through her window and he decided that he needed her. So he would force himself into her house and but he found that she was not alone. Her 55-year-old father, Tom, and eight-year-old nephew, Sean, were there. And sadly, he would murder all three of them. Days after he did this, eight-year-old Sean's mother called the police after she learned her son did not show up for school that day. He had been visiting with his aunt and his grandfather. Police reached out to the neighbors who were instructed to check on the family. So they did and they found the lights were on inside the house and the mail was uncollected and there was also a stack of newspapers sitting on their driveway of course this was a red flag and neighbors were alarmed so they decided to enter the house there they would find a truly gruesome sight they would first find 55 year old tom stabbed to death in the back and the chest sean was lying face down and lifeless with one stab wound that went from his back through his chest. He had been attacked while he was watching TV. Julia was found naked, hanging off her bed. Her body had been smothered in vinegar. She had been stabbed in the back, but her killer had flipped her over after. The crime scene was described as oddly clean and organized. Towels were left in the washer that were believed to be placed there by the killer. Rowling laid low the following months after the murders, He stayed at his parents' house, which was just miles from the house of the murderers. Things did not go well for him because the following May, his father picked a fight with him. So, he shot him in the face with a gun that he stole from an abandoned house. He would then flee to Gainesville, Florida. And while he was on the verge of doing this, he broke into the home of the recently deceased Michael Kennedy, where he stole two handguns and the late man's identification papers. So once he was in Gainesville, he would go by the name Michael. He robbed grocery stores, banks and homes on the way to Gainesville, attempting to make enough money to live off. According to witnesses, he acted politely while he committed the robberies and he asked his victims to quote, pray for me. God knows I need it. End quote. When Rowling arrived in Gainesville, he set up a tent in a patch of nearby woods. There he waited, watching as the community celebrated the start of the new school year, knowing that all too well, their joy was about to come to an end. On August 24, 1990, the Friday before classes were to begin, Rowling sent his sights on 17-year-old college freshmen Christina Powell and Sonia Larson, He broke into their home using a screwdriver to tamper with their locks, which is just absolutely terrifying. That's what nightmares are made of. Inside, he found Powell asleep on the couch downstairs. He watched her sleeping. Without touching her, he made his way upstairs where he found Larson sleeping in her bed. This time, he did not hesitate. She awoke to a monster taping her mouth shut with duct tape so no one would hear her scream. He bound her wrist before stabbing her in the back while she fought, but ultimately failed to save herself. Back downstairs, Powell was still asleep, unaware that her roommate was dead. Rolling tape Powell's mouth shut and bound her wrist, just as he did with Larson. He cut her clothes off her body before raping her. Her face pressed into the hard, cold floor. He stabbed the innocent 17-year-old five times in the back and sliced off her nipples. Afterward, he went upstairs and raped Larson's corpse. Before he left the home, he positioned the bodies into sexually provocative positions, just as he did with Julia Grissom. He took a shower before he abandoned his victims, dead, alone, and brutalized, just three days before they were supposed to begin the rest of their lives with the first day of college. On his bike ride back to his campsite, he found one of Powell's nipples in his bag. He waited 24 hours before he ended the life of his next victim, and this is the most gruesome murder scene that he did yet. Krista Hoyt was an 18-year-old who worked at the local police station. She was known for her kind smile and sweet demeanor. The night of her murder, she had spoken to her mother on the phone. She told her mother that if she ever needed her just to call. Tragically, Krista's mother would never get that chance. Rowling pushed down Holt's chain-link fence in order to break into her yard. He broke into her apartment by prying open her sliding glass door with a knife and screwdriver. She was not home at the time, but Rowling was patient. He sat on the couch waiting for her to come home. When she finally did come home, he snuck up from from behind and trapped her in a chokehold which knocked her out. He taped her mouth shut, bound her wrist, and dragged her body to the bedroom. He cut off her clothes with a knife and raped her before stabbing her multiple times in the back. When he was finished, he sliced off the 18-year-old's head. Before he left the house, he dragged a bookshelf from the living room to the bedroom. He placed Krista's head on top of the bookshelf so it was staring at her body. Then he positioned the body so it was sitting up, naked and headless, with the legs spread. By the time that school began, the town of Gainesville was ripe with terror. Students began to leave campus and return to their hometowns and flocks. According to one UF student, quote, our whole dorm this weekend's going to be gone, end quote. Another student would say, quote, I don't care about classes. I don't care about anything. I'm leaving. Better to wait half a semester to be alive than die tomorrow and never go to school, end quote. Gun stores all over Gainesville and the surrounding area sold out of their weapons. The town was panicked and confused. The few students that remained walked only in groups, and no one was alone at night. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Do you feel like you are stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery stores and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs And nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. My personal favorite is the lobster-filled ravioli and shrimp. Just go to the link in our show notes to get $80 off. That's eight zero, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. On August 27th, a local bank was held up at gunpoint. The next day, a person matching the description of the robber was seen crossing a highway overpass to get into the woods. He was not alone. The person was captured by the police, but the man that he was with did get away. The captured person said his friend was named Michael Kennedy. He led them to Kennedy's campsite, where they found bags of cash covered in red dye and a tape recorder. They would store the evidence but would not pursue the case at the time, because they were really busy and involved in solving the campus murders that were going on. That same day, Rowling broke into one more apartment. And this was the apartment of twenty three year olds Manny Tabato and Tracy Pauls. Rowling used his knife and screwdriver to break into their home and found the roommates to be fast asleep. He went after Manny first, and he was a six foot two inch, two hundred pound football player. He fought hard for his life, but was no match for his demented and determined killer. The struggle was bloody and intense, but in the end, Rowling ended the young man's life. His roommate Tracy was awakened by the commotion and locked herself into the bedroom where she hid, trembling and afraid. Rowling, unsurprisingly, broke through the locked door and captured her. He taped her mouth shut, tied up her wrist, cut off her clothes, and raped her, before stabbing her repeatedly in the back. He posed her body in a provocative position, but did not mutilate it. He left Manny without posing him and fled the scene of the crime. The Gainesville police made a stark statement to their community. And they said, quote, with the discovery of Manny and Tracy, we confirmed our worst fears, that a serial killer is at work in Gainesville, end quote. Police assembled a task force of 6,900 police officers. Hundreds of reports flooded in of suspicious activity from students and community members. Some of the students were afraid to open their doors to police when they arrived on the scene, scared that they might be the killer. For all they knew, anyone could be the monster. One name would come up again and again in the police reports, and this was Edward Lewis Humphrey, a UF freshman who lived across the street from Tracy and Manny that summer. He had a bit of a colored history. His lease least ended early after he kept getting into arguments with his neighbors, and he'd been seen carrying knives and wearing camo. He often talked about Satan and would wander into the woods late at night on, quote, missions. His face was scarred from an accident, making him look particularly menacing. Around the time of the murders, he wandered into a donut shop and left the employees terrified. According to one worker, Humphrey, quote, told me something that just really, really bothered me. He said he had knives at home and he could fillet the skin off my body, end quote. And yeah, that is very terrifying. He had been diagnosed with manic depression, which is now called bipolar, and he was off his medication for months. It made sense to police that this troubled, violent young man would be responsible for the murders. Still, there was no hard evidence about this, so they could not do anything. Their time finally came a few days later when Humphrey was arrested for assaulting his 79-year-old grandmother. Police took this opportunity to question him. While he awaited trial for the assault, word spread that the police had caught the serial killer. So students would return to campus, people began walking alone again, and it seemed like a weight was lifted off the town of Gainesville. Maybe like the town could finally breathe again. But in the meantime, there still was a killer out there. Humphrey's family did not believe he was the killer. Even his grandmother did not believe it, the one that he assaulted. In October, Humphrey was sentenced to 22 months for the assault of his grandmother. So the town thought that the killer was behind bars. However, a few months into his sentence, DNA results came back and they said it was no match for the Gainesville murders. The police were shocked and they were at a loss. They had no choice at this time but to drop the case against Humphrey. Still, the police did not release this information to the public right away. The media believed he was the killer and constantly hounded his family. Around the time that Humphrey's DNA came back negative, police in Louisiana caught word that a serial killer was in Gainesville, and the crimes had a resemblance to the murders of the Grissom family. They then found a person of interest who had lived in Louisiana fled around the times of the Grissom murders, had been arrested in July of 1991 for robbery. His name was Danny Rowling. It was then that the police returned to the bank robbery from years earlier. They went through the evidence and found the campsite that had been stored away and untouched since its discovery. In evidence, they found a 9mm pistol, a screwdriver that had 17 matches to pry marks left at entry points of all three murder scenes, Black draw-strain pants that were worn during the killings. A ski mask that matched fibers on a piece of duct tape found at Tracy and Manny's murder scene. And DNA matching Krista and Manny. Most damning, though, was a tape recorder with a tape tucked inside it. So, of course, they push play. And on the tape, he basically says his name and says that this is not the road I wanted to go down. I loved my brother, my father, my mother... But this is what I had to do. And he also said at the end that he had something that he had to do. And that, of course, was to commit more murders. After Rowling's DNA was matched to the murders, he was charged and faced up to three life terms and 170 years in prison. The families of the victims fought for his charge to be changed to the death penalty. On June 9, 1992, two years after his murder spree, Rowling entered a plea of not guilty. While in custody, he attempted suicide multiple times and engaged in violence often. He was sent to the psych ward within the prison. While in prison, he admitted to suffering from multiple personality disorder. He told police that he tried to prevent this happening, but he had an alter ego that would do this. He would reach out to a crime writer named Sandra London and said that he wanted to tell her his story. And she accepted, and they decided to write a book together. So they would communicate regularly. And they would actually even fall in love despite his past. And she really believed that he was horrified with what he had done. And he really just wanted to make amends. So, yeah. The families of his victims, along with the police, the judge, and others involved in the case, disagree. They described him as someone who never expressed remorse for his actions and seemed to revel in the glory of his crimes. He wanted to be famous, and that's why he took the time to place the bodies in the positions that he placed them in. It was all about the game of the crime. Rowling in London soon became engaged. And they both would profess their love to each other with the press's help. And of course, the press ridiculed this love affair. Their romance continued for years while he was in prison, and the two did finish their book, which was called The Making of a Serial Killer, The Real Story of the Gainesville Student Murders, in the killer's own words. On April twentieth, 1994, Danny Rowling was sentenced to death. The day of his sentencing, he turned to Sandra, who was present in the courtroom, to provide support for her. He sang her a song that he had written himself. On October 25, 2006, he was executed. His victims' families were present, filled with emotion, as they watched. The case of the Gainesville Ripper is notorious in the country and over the world. The 1996 horror film Scream was based off the murders. The killings continued to haunt the small college town of Gainesville, which will be always a little more paranoid, a little more afraid, and a lot less innocent than it was in the days and years before the murders. The UF students of 1990 learned a much harder lesson than they anticipated when they arrived on campus at the end of that summer. They learned that monsters are real and they can attack at any moment. That was part two of two of Danny Rowling, a.k.a. the Gainesville Ripper. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, if you could, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and rate, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps the show out and it helps others find the show. Thank you so much for your support. If you have any ideas for upcoming cases, you can either email me, truecrimeworks at gmail.com or send me a message on Instagram at truecrimeworks and you'll see my logo there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and I look forward to speaking to you next week. I hope everyone has a great rest of your week.